Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects is proudly presented by Audio-Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. This is the second part of a two-part episode about Xenos, an organisation that was originally set up as a leaderless group that rejected the structures and trappings of mainstream churches. Over the years, it has faced allegations of manipulation and control, made by people who joined and left in completely different decades. If you've already listened to part one, you'll be well-placed to dive into part two now. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of physical and sexual assault and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Fair warning, we're going to talk a little bit about suicide in this next section. And a disclaimer here that, as we all know, mental health issues are prevalent across society and it's difficult to draw a direct line between what causes someone to attempt to die by suicide. But how an organisation responds to issues around mental health and suicidality can make a big difference. Here's Jessica McNulty, who you'll remember from part one. People are, are coming out of Xenos in body bags physically and emotionally. They have a large number of suicides in the church and of people that have left. So many that they had to write a whole policy on it and how suicide is a sin and it's selfish. Dennis McCallum, the founding elder, said that you know most people who commit suicide are doing it to punish someone else. In an email to the whole Xenos College group, Dennis McCallum wrote in December 2016 about an unprecedented number of students contemplating suicide, which he said was a phenomenon outside of Xenos circles too. He went on to list a number of moral points on suicide, including that it is a sin, it is murder, it's like giving God the finger, it's cruel and foolish, and that it is intensely selfish. Quote, At the bottom line, one committing suicide considers his or her feelings more important than anyone else's. Finally, he writes, committing suicide is following the calling of Satan. Quote, Satan sees your death as his final victory over you. He has forever removed you from the place of being able to contribute to the spiritual struggle going on. Delia Grantham was a member in high school and had a friend who was also in Xenos die by suicide during that time. She consequently had some dark thoughts herself and told Dana King from the Columbia Dispatch, quote, They were telling me even the thought of wanting to kill yourself is this big sin and you can't go to heaven now. I know that many religious people believe that suicide is a sin, but I also know that many of them would recognise that telling a depressed person this is probably not the best way to deal with their mental health issues. Even if you have never had any mental health issues before, living in that environment is, it's almost impossible not to have 
some kind of anxiety or depression when you're in such a high intense structure. And then when they're spiritualizing it and saying it's, you know, you're not trusting God enough, you're not this, that, and the other. And they have what they call love counseling, I believe is the term. And that would be, you should work with your discipler first. Uh, They should counsel you. And then if that doesn't work, then they'll send you to their biblical counseling, which I was forced to go to at one point with the founding elder's wife. And nobody ever told me during that session that it wasn't private. I assumed that it was like traditional counseling where they were legally bound to keep the information discussed private. And they aren't, and nobody had disclosed that to me at the time. And so she spent the whole time telling me that I just needed to serve more and that I was not submitting to leadership enough and that it was my sin. And then went and told everybody who was an adult and involved in my life in the church, the things that I had said or told somebody and everything that I had said was kind of known among leadership. So my only point in that is that there's a lot of people aren't really trained. They've, they've just decided based on Xenos criteria that they're spiritually mature enough to counsel people. And they specifically state uh, they have teachings that that most people don't know about unless you're in leadership that they want to work with the home church leaders so they'll send updates to the home church leaders of what they're discussing in counseling so my point is that if you're dealing with a mental health crisis and you have to go through all these steps before you finally are encouraged to go out to what they call secular help you know that could be months of really dangerous time where they're not connecting you with, with real help. And then you internalize a lot of that. A lot of people do. So, so there, there are quite a few, we just had, we just had someone this week try. They, they, they weren't successful, but there's a lot of this. And I don't think they take it seriously. Here's the voice of Dennis McCallum himself in a portion of a teaching that he gave in 2002. Greasing this squeaky wheel and focusing on the people doing worse in our home church. You know, in some home churches, the surest way to get attention from the leaders is to act as neurotic as possible. You know, threaten suicide, uh, go out and get high, you know do something bizarre and uh, claim you have devils coming after you and everything else and every all of a sudden everyone's all around oh we're just going to pray for you we're going to bring your meals over to you and so forth and we wind up really reinforcing neurotic behavior that's the way to really get attention in this church is be whacked out you know a lot of our wacky behavior from our people would go away if we just ignored it and focused more on people that wanted to grow. Then people would realize that's how you get attention here is you get it on with the Lord. And this is from a page called Love Therapy, Definitions and Strategies on the church's website. Quote, In love therapy, the key to success in one's emotional life is expressing victorious, mature love output rather than getting love input. In other words, no matter how those around us behave or treat us, we are always able to employ biblical principles of love, and in non-clinical cases, this should eventually result in improved emotional health. Love therapy defines a person's tendencies in relationships, or lack thereof, before developing a practical strategy for advancement in love-giving. In theory, advancement in loving, especially in those areas where the client is weak, will minister to the individual's most central needs. End quote. There's an example of how this plays out in the story of a former member named Amy, who told the Daily Beast that she had been in a highly controlling and emotionally abusive marriage with another member while she was in the church. Quote, Once, at her breaking point, she asked a church leader how much longer she was supposed to endure this treatment. She says the leader told her, 
Jesus endured suffering at the hands of his abusers until his death. It's not about how you are loved, but how you love others that matters. End quote. You'll recognise the idea of turning all problems inwards that is inherent in this approach. The fault is always with the individual. From the same page, which is attributed to Dennis McCallum, quote, While the client's problems may, in part, be a result of the actions or attitudes of other people in the client's life, we assume that, in the final analysis, clients suffer from their own failure to victoriously love others. This approach has borne excellent fruit with people suffering from common problems and even from moderate neuroses. I have little experience to suggest it is adequate for more severe personality disorders or with major mental illness although others have reported favourable results, even in relatively severe cases, end quote. It's devastating to me, the internal wounds that people are coming out with that, ha- that are lifelong. But it's really sad to me that, that they don't take these things seriously. I mean, people are literally losing their lives. Oh, I'm sorry. But it just breaks my heart. Here's another quote from Dennis's response article to Reverend Martinez's Xenos write-up. Although we like our church and feel blessed to be in it, I directly deny that we hold that other Christian bodies are inferior. Our view is that different groups have different strengths and weaknesses. But former leader Steve Cardoza shared with me that, quote, Dennis would take up-and-coming leaders on trips across the country to visit other churches. They would come back and present their findings to the entire group, and it was always the same story. One year Dennis said in front of the entire college group that Xenos may be the only real believing church in the US, and perhaps even the world. Jessica had a similar impression from her time there. I mean, it's a very us versus them mentality. I I personally had some outside influences, and I don't know that I personally bought into it as much, but... They have a very, it's Xenos and then it's the world. And anything that isn't Xenos is in the world. I mean, they have papers where they state that even other Christian churches or Christian universities most likely have distorted theology. So they really believe that they they have it nailed down and you're taught to have this very, there's some fear of the world, right? That if you don't, follow the letter of the law that Xenos has laid down, that you could fall into the world and be hurt. Katie Reinecker started attending Xenos Bible study classes in 1998, when she was in middle school, with a friend who had grown up in the church. Over the years, she dedicated herself fully to the belief system, and only applied to Ohio State University to pursue her tertiary studies in engineering, knowing that the church expected her to stay in Columbus. Katie moved into a ministry house and was on a track to leadership, with her ability to intellectualise Bible teachings appreciated by those with spiritual authority. She writes, By the time I was a freshman in the college ministry, I had taught central teachings, the large group meetings combining many home churches, at both the high school and middle school level. I was mentoring a high school girl in a discipleship relationship, attending up to five different meetings per week, living in a ministry house, pursuing a degree in chemical engineering, and working part-time to pay my rent. My spiritual credibility with the organisation was well recognised. Over the years, she faced criticism for sleeping while her ministry house roommate still needed her, for studying too late on campus with classmates who were trying to accommodate her busy schedule, was told that college was her idol, and that her class accomplishments were getting in the way of her relationship with God. Finally, in 2006, she found that she had to leave Xenos, for a variety of reasons and in a story that she says could be its own book, but from what fundamentally boiled down to sheer exhaustion. She writes that she left, feeling broken and like a failure before God, because she was unable to meet the demands of the church. Then mere months after leaving, on the 1st of July 2006, she was involved in a major car accident with a drunk driver. One of the three occupants of her car was killed immediately, and Katie found herself in hospital with a skull fracture and a shattered pelvis. During her recovery, 
she writes that news of the tragedy, quote, circulated widely and rapidly in the groups that the three of us had ties to, family and friends, the company we were interning with, honours engineering at Ohio State, and, in my case, the church. What ensued was a veritable outpouring of love, compassion and support, with one notable exception. Katie did see some Xenos friends in the immediate aftermath of the accident, but soon church leaders advised members that they should not contact or support her, apparently after conferring with God. The impact of this horrific treatment was immense, and Katie sees it as a hugely formative experience in her life. Here's what Dennis McCallum wrote in his response to Reverend Martinez's article. Our members consider the church to be a highly compassionate and loving group. I agree with them. A Reddit poster had a similar experience to Katie, when he found himself suffering from an unknown neurological condition that landed him in hospital, he thought he was going to die. He tried to stay in touch with his Xenos friends after leaving the church because he cared deeply about them, and assumed that they would still care about him too. Quote, I sent out texts and phone calls to all of my friends. I said, I'm not sure what's going on, but I think it's serious and I want to see you. I can't walk or move my arms much. I'm having trouble breathing. The docs don't know what it is. Only one Xenoid replied. I probably texted 20. He told me, man, I hope you're okay. I'll definitely pray for you. I texted him back trying to get him to come see me. He never replied. That entire time, no one from Xenos came to see me or even call me, while many of my other worldly friends stayed with me. One even lived with me while I recovered at home. No matter how many times I texted or called my Xenos friends, they would never reply. I've also seen a copy of an email sent by an elder's wife about a college-aged student who was asked to move out of a ministry house after she was deemed to be in need of church discipline. I'm told that she had stayed out past her 10pm curfew and crossed the line sexually, in their opinion, with a guy. The email includes, quote, We shouldn't give her fellowship, such as hanging out with her, until she decides to be real with God and stop lying to the body of Christ. The biggest misconception believers might have about this kind of situation is that we are cruel to not contact her. We have a sister that is hurting. This thought is from Satan. We have all loved her and this is her choice to let go. We should respect her freedom and let her eat up the world until she gets sick of it. I'm told that this young woman died by suicide after weeks of her distressed phone calls to Xenos members went unanswered. One lesson Katie Reinecker learnt from her experiences was that, quote, Real love requires no source. It is born of human nuance, empathy and conviction to act, and its only source is inside each of us. I asked Jessica about the money side of things at Xenos, and she doesn't think it's ever been particularly money-motivated, though she did say that Dennis and Gary got six-figure gifts from the church when they retired as senior elders. On various message boards, there's speculation about the ministry houses, which have multiple people to a room, and on a historical website page about how to join Xenos's servant team, one requirement listed is, quote, Joining the fiscal support team, which implies regular substantial giving to the church's general fund, while also supporting Xenos missions and building funds. In response to a question from NBC4 about the number of people living in ministry houses, current senior pastor Conrad Hilario wrote, The church does not own any ministry houses. It's difficult to estimate how many people live in a typical ministry house since each living arrangement is unique and negotiated between the people choosing to live together and their respective landlord. This seems disingenuous. There's a ministry house agreement set up by the church and available on its website. A former member posted on Reddit about his experiences, quote, I tried to buy a ministry house and Xenos leaders told me they had to sign off before I could make such a major purchase. A listserv post from Dennis McCallum to the servant team in 2011 was shared with me, and it includes, quote, This is a good time to buy real estate. Prices are way low and probably starting back up. Buying a ministry house is a good investment because you have constant occupancy, you can usually get enough to cover your mortgage and a repair slash maintenance fund, and end up with a good equity and even retirement income. 
then you get a nice reward in heaven to boot, end quote. It also says that houses owned by members are, quote, excellent because the landlord understands what a ministry house is and is able to make arrangements like not having everyone sign a lease, so if someone needs to be kicked out, they can be. Here's a teaching by Gary Delashmet's wife Bev from 2016 that mentions kicking people out of ministry houses and how this might be done out of love. Loving, if the motive is right, it is loving to inflict pain. Um, The pain obviously must be motivated um, for their good and not your frustration. How do we inflict pain? They must suffer natural consequences. Do not eliminate those teaching moments. Often, you know, they'll get themselves in a mess and because they're so desperate and they might have to go to a homeless shelter or they might have to um, be arrested or they might have to move out of a ministry house, they will come with tears, you know, of regret. And then we tend to want to, okay, you know, they seem sincere now. And um, then we'll come in and and minimize some of the negative consequences. Don't do that. Desiree Gaylord shared with me that those who move into ministry houses must be single for a long time in a ministry house until they earn dating. Numerous former members told the Daily Beast that, quote, They were told not to pursue someone inside dwell because they were not deemed ready to date or because the other person was not spiritual enough for them. Desiree's impression was that having single members also helped to bring new people in. She knows of many who felt pressured to break up with a partner when they joined if their boyfriend or girlfriend didn't join with them. Desiree says that the church would blame these relationships for everything wrong in their life. When Desiree was involved, smoking was still a big part of the cool church culture. She says, When I was in high school, I was a dancer and super healthy and active with no interest in smoking. Not long after joining the high school group, I became a chain smoker. I could bum smokes from other kids and adults there who supplied them discreetly. She says that a leader named Jeff Gordon, who was a doctor, tried to address the problem within Xenos in the 1990s and was mocked for his efforts. Desiree herself ended up addicted to smoking for 20 years and says that she hears vaping is the big thing now. Here's a comment on a Reddit thread from 2016. They have made the past five years as my neighbours hell. They are by far the most inconsiderate neighbours I've ever had. They play very, very loud games of basketball until 3am on weeknights. The other night they had an entire DJ booth set up in the backyard blasting music so loud my apartment was shaking. They have regular gigantic meetings at 7am in their backyard on Saturday mornings, the only day I can sleep in, right outside my bedroom window. The last time this happened, there were at least 100 people out there screaming, laughing and carrying on. The last group that moved out completely trashed our alleyway and even blocked my parking spot with a couch. I've never seen so much trash. I'm not very confident these people knew what trash bags were or that you were supposed to put waste inside the dumpster. Just piles and piles and piles of furniture, clothes, books, all things that could have easily been donated, covered in old food, maggots and cat poop bags. The city had to bring a literal backhoe to clean it all up. The swearing that still permeates this cool church also tips into misogyny, with Desiree telling me that Dennis calls women chicks and broads, as well as a C-word that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast. I did note that there was only one female elder listed on the annual reports. The leadership team on the website currently features one female sphere leader, so two women on a page with 18 men. Desiree also said that outside of believing that homosexuality is a sin, Dennis has also been known to be cruel and homophobic, quote, making fun of LGBTQ folks like he's still in middle school. In themes that will be familiar to many, purity culture was big in Xenos, and there are multiple stories of young women being treated more harshly than young men for getting a bit too hot and heavy with a partner. Desiree knew of a time in 2002 that Dennis was seen leaving the porn section of a video store. She tells me that he was only ever made to confess to a small group of leaders, while, quote, the rest of us get humiliated, not only making us confess our sexual sins in front of our entire church group in detail, but the telling of all our personal sexual details to everyone when we leave as well. 
Jessica McNulty had a story with some similar themes. They had an FBI raid on one of the uh, ministry houses for child porn. And that man was represented by the uh, Zenos attorney, a man in Zenos. And his ministry, there were some ministry house people that thought that they pulled one over on the FBI by defending him and saying, well, anybody could have been on his computer. How do you know it was him? And those people were subpoenaed. That's all court record. He ended up taking a plea deal and he's a sexual registered sex offender for it, but he didn't serve any time and he's just on the registry and he was allowed to continue to lead. He wasn't removed. He's still an active member who's married with children in the church. But if you disagree with leadership or they don't think you're bringing enough people or you're whatever their reasoning is, you, you know, got a little too frisky with your boyfriend, they'll kick you out like that. But they will cover up a sex offender like... There's another aspect to the purity culture attitude to women's so-called virtue that can play out in incredibly damaging ways. When Jessica's cognitive dissonance finally led her to disengage with Xenos, she was still emotionally involved with the church. Sometime before, she'd had a confrontation with Dennis McCallum's son. I, I was just really burnt out again, and they had decided to collapse our cell group and wanted me to join this other home church that Dennis McCallum's son was leading. The elder son was leading. It was his first home church that he was leading. And he needed another female leader to split it because they had like 50 people. And I said, I was blindsided by it. I didn't know it was happening. And um, I said that I would think about it and I would pray about it. And he immediately flew into a rage about that this is what God wanted for me. This is where I needed to be, that there was nothing to pray about. He went into all of these statistics on how if a group has X amount of people and they don't split, that they'll end up dying and uh, that they will not physically dying, but that the group will not be successful And they had it down to this kind of like very clinical statistical method. And that if he didn't have another female to lead the other side, that that he wouldn't be able to split and and all of this stuff. And I said, okay, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to pray about it. And he again said, there's nothing to pray about. This is what God wants. And I said, you don't speak for God. And it had gotten to the point where he was standing over me and he was screaming and he was sweating and he was all red and spit flying out of his mouth. And it kicked in my fight or flight. Like this man is standing over me yelling at me. And I stood up and I screamed back in his face, but I didn't give a fuck who his dad was, but that he didn't talk to God for me. And because of that situation, I wasn't, allowed to join another group until I resolved the conflict with the elder son. This would turn out to be the beginning of the end, but there was still some time before Jessica finally reached the point where she wanted to have some distance from Xenos altogether. It was a slow leave, so it took me uh, a couple years, but I just slowly became less involved. I was still going to the larger meetings, and I was still leading in a middle school group for a couple of years. But I did not join another home church or cell group, and I was just kind of floating. And I started going to the college group irregularly. But I didn't feel welcomed because I now have the scarlet letter because I had upset Joe McCallum. And so... I And I was really hurt, and I was having a really hard time matching the two. So 
I, I decided that I was going to, if I'm already being treated as though I've done something wrong when I haven't, that maybe I'll just go live a regular life for a little bit and just be a normal teenager for a little bit and then come back and they can say I was in the world, but look, she has a testimony or whatever. That was kind of how I justified it. Jessica met a young man who seemed like a great candidate for a short relationship for someone who didn't have much experience of dating. And a note that the following section contains references to sexual abuse. He was home on leave for three months from the military. And I thought, well, this is the perfect guy that I could casually date because I didn't have a ton of experience with dating because purity culture was super heavy. And I was just super vulnerable but I thought this guy would, you know, he's going to have to leave. So there'll be a natural ending and I won't have to, it won't have to be this big deal because I wasn't supposed to date somebody who was outside of the, the church, you know, anyways. So what happened was like six weeks into dating, he got me super drunk and at this party and he, uh, I, I, I blacked out and I, he raped me. And I was a virgin and I, and I, <laughs> anyway, so I thought that I could some, somewhere in my screwed up head, I thought, well, if I marry him, it won't be as bad. It won't be as sinful or something like that. Because in the eyes of God, I, you know, they didn't have courts back in the biblical days. If you had sex, that was, you were married. That's kind of how I was taught. So that's kind of somehow in this messed up traumatized. And I didn't recognize it as rape right either because it was my fault I was in the world I had been drinking and I actually took him to college a college group and some CTs some larger meeting that I went to a college group because I was desperate for help I knew something was wrong and I was miserable and I was terrified of him but I didn't know how to get I was like so stuck I didn't know how to get out so I went to I thought well Somebody at the church will tell tell me I need to break up with him, and it'll be my out. I don't know why I felt like I needed somebody to, but I I felt like I did. I just I needed help, and and nobody would talk to me. It was the craziest experience. And after the teaching, somebody came up to me and said, "Why are you here? Why are you even here?" And he was like. See, nobody even likes you. Like, he used that to alienate me further. And I I ended up in this, you know, just really messed up marriage until I was 31. I met him when I was 18 and then left when I was 31. And all of their teachings. I, so I had physically left the church. Uh, but I mentally didn't leave. I still was terrified of trusting another church's doctrine because it had been so ingrained and programmed in me that somebody else might be, you know, wrong. <laughs> that Zenos was right. And I thought, well, the things that people did were wrong, but their doctrine was right, you know, and the people are sinful. And that's kind of their party line that they used to justify things. So anyway, so I left physically, but I, I didn't leave mentally. And I still listened to their teachings online. And I, I devoured anything on marriage and relationships. And again, didn't identify that I was being raped my entire marriage because I was sinful by withholding my body. The elder's wife teaches, you know, your husband knows your bo- his bo- your body better than and, and saying no is a product of the world and we have to get away from the world system. They have, you know, classes for women in marriage and say you're supposed to sleep naked so that you're readily available. So me saying no was my sin. Here's a clip of Gary Delashmet's wife, Bev, talking about God's design for sexuality in a 2013 teaching that is still available on the church's website. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul reminds us, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? 
He says, for you and this I love, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And our Lord has paid a high price to make our bodies his. And we do belong to him. And I hope this doesn't um, sound cheesy. And I prayed I wouldn't cry when I um, said it this afternoon. But I have discovered that my Lord and Savior knows how to care for my body far better than I did. He knows how to protect me. He knows how to honor me and give me dignity. And he knows how to do that for all of us. And he wants to. Okay. And my godly husband knows how to take care of my body better than I do. And he's teaching me how to take care of his. And so we have to stop thinking like the world that it's our body to say yes or no or to do with it what we want. That's a worldview. It wasn't until Jessica reached breaking point in her marriage, when she realised that she had to leave or she wouldn't be alive much longer, that she started to contemplate that some of the doctrine might actually be wrong. It took me about a a year to come up with a a safety plan and an exit plan and, and kind of working through things. And I had this, I wasn't emotional. It was just this like, epiphany that if I stayed, I would kill myself, that there was no way that I could survive any longer. And so I, at that point, was like, you know, well, I'd rather be divorced and alive, that type of sin. (laughs) I'd rather be a sinner than, than lose my life. That was kind of how I came to the conclusion that I needed to get out of my marriage. And so I got into, uh, therapy secretly and started to work through some things. And I had a a Christian, we had a marriage counselor and he privately told me like, you gotta, you gotta go. And I'm really proud of you that you're working on a plan. And, and that was helpful anyway. So I, it was through trying to dissect how I identifying that I was being abused, identifying the severity of that abuse in my marriage and then trying to understand I'm a smart, I was successful, I I had my stuff together, I wasn't some super timid, like I, I didn't understand how I allowed it to happen, not, you know, at that at that point. And so I started to dig into well, why did I feel like I couldn't leave? And and why did I feel like I couldn't get a divorce? And why did I think that this wasn't abuse? And that led me to all of this really broken doctrine and harmful doctrine that Zenos teaches and just started to actively work through deconstructing those harmful things. And, and I spoke out about it for the first time publicly in a Facebook post. And I was inundated with messages from people who had very similar stories to me. And it just broke my heart that I wasn't alone in that, you know, it, it just makes me really sad. But yeah, so so it was leaving my marriage and, and that kind of led me to really breaking down those false beliefs. Former member Mark Kennedy launched the website Xenos is a Cult in mid-2018. It houses many stories from other ex-members and a host of links and resources about the organisation. The Columbus Dispatch report of allegations that Xenos was controlling came out in November 2018. Message board posts continued to pop up that year as well. In 2019, some 50 years since Dennis and Gary founded the church originally known as the Fish House Fellowship, the pair decided that it was time to retire as senior elders of Xenos. They are still listed as founding pastors and pastoral leaders on the leadership page of the website, and Dennis also as a college CT teacher. But the two senior elders today are Conrad Hilario and Ryan Lowry, the latter of whom is Dennis McCallum's son-in-law. To complement the shift, in 2020, they decided to rename the church, and Xenos is now known as Dwell Community Church. Former members wonder if this move was trying to escape some of the bad press and criticisms. While Dwell says, part of the reason was practical, 
Xenos is hard to pronounce and unfamiliar, and part of the reason was to better describe us, a place to dwell with the Lord and in community with other Christians. Jessica and some of the other former members noticed something that came along with the new name. The funny thing is that there was a website called Xenos is a Cult and it has tons of stories. And before they announced their name change, they bought all of the domains for Dwell is a Cult. There were like seven or eight different domains that they bought. And interestingly, it seems that Dwell isn't the only name they're using. They're planting other churches uh, under different names. There's a new one in Orlando this summer. I haven't been able to find the name yet. There's a new one in Cincinnati. There's a new one in eastern Columbus, like Newark area. That The name they chose was Christian Community Church. They're intentionally choosing names that are that are going to be buried in, you know, a Google search that are going to seem very inconspicuous. Sometimes when leadership passes from the original leader, things can improve. But we've also looked at plenty of instances on this podcast where that hasn't been the case. Jessica wasn't too optimistic about it. Dennis kind of created a monster, in my opinion, and I unfortunately think that this second generation of people, of elders, of leadership, has just become worse in terms of control and more legalistic in it. In his response article to Reverend Martinez, which was published in the last couple of years and definitely after Xenos became Dwell, Dennis wrote, Dwell is not authoritarian, neither are we legalistic. In fact, we are known for a high level of freedom and respect for individual decision-making. The only authority given to Dwell leaders is the right to decide how the ministry will operate, e.g. when to meet, what to teach, etc., never being in authority over members' lives. This is a recording of Dennis from a 2018 teaching. Autonomy is another form of rebellion. Autonomy is where you're just going to saddle up, I'm going this way. And uh, you guys should come too. Bring some people along and you launch out in a direction. You never talk to anybody about it. You never checked in with your leaders. And, uh, you know, it's affecting the home church. We just had an incident recently where we got the, a notice that the cell group was canceled and prayer meeting too for our home church because the guys were going to go off on us on trip. And this is like on Wednesday. This is cell group's Friday. And we're like, what? They never said anything to us about this. And, uh, you know, they were just like, so? They really didn't know. We hadn't basically taught, I guess, that what autonomy is. They didn't know what it is. And here, you know, the whole home church is being impacted. I'm like, it's not yourself to cancel, first of all. And, uh, you know, it's not your prayer group either. And any normal person who understands what's going on would check in and say, we want to do this. And I said, you could have arranged to have your trip or whatever. But, you know, so, yeah, we, we can't assume that our people necessarily understand these things. It needs to be taught. Autonomy. I'm just heading off and just uh, doing my own thing and not checking in with any authority. In the Old Testament, we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. This is what they did. Uh, that which is not ordered by Jehovah or by Aaron, their father, was strange fire. And God rejected it and burned them. So uh, that is not how you serve God. You don't just say, hey, let's go down and, and head on in and do an offering to God. <laughs> you're to be following directions and to be cooperating and following leadership. Here's another example of a teaching that you might find contrasts with the idea that there is freedom and respect for individual decision-making. Dennis McCallum and Scott Risley wrote an article called Propositions on Christ, Culture and Career about students who might want to study at universities not near the church. Quote, since God has sovereignly placed these students in Xenos, shouldn't the burden of proof be on why someone should go away to school? If someone had a perfectly good job and decided they would leave their church and establish relationships to move to another city to take a slightly better job, wouldn't we critique that decision? Why wouldn't the same critique apply if we're talking about colleges? Desiree Gaylord told me, 
teens are encouraged to give up scholarships to schools like Harvard, only to be disfellowshipped later. I was pressured to quit my dance team that interrupted my Friday night cell groups. I refused because it was only seasonal football game performances and I worked hard for it. I made a fuss that it was wrong. This started my stigma of rebellion. All kids have the same path pushed onto them to Columbus colleges and ministry houses. Emily Sugarman interviewed former member Madeline Beale for her article in the Daily Beast, and the 24-year-old said that she had rejected a scholarship to the Art Institute of Chicago to stay in Ohio. Madeline was born into the church and says that she was told, God has a plan for you here, and he's put you here, and you can't leave. That would be disobeying God. I also came across a story shared on Reddit by one former member who was having trouble with the drinking culture at college, including within Xenos groups, and was elated when she got a job at a Christian summer camp. She thought being away from temptations for the summer was just what she needed. Xenos leaders disagreed and told her to pray on it. She prayed and told them she still felt it was the best decision for her. Leadership then did allow her to go, but with conditions including that she tell the summer camp director that she was an alcoholic and that she spent every weekend back with her home church. She complied, the director agreed with her that the job would be great for her situation, and when she came back for her first weekend, she was sat down and told that she was being excommunicated from the church. She wrote that this experience was worse than an unwanted breakup by a factor of 5 to 10, was hugely psychologically damaging, and that it had impacted her ability to open herself up to friendships with others ever since. She also wrote, I used to fight all of the cult accusations and thought people were making things up or blowing things out of proportion, until it happened to me. I'm going to play you an excerpt from a teaching that Gary Delashmet gave in July 2022 around autonomy, and I think it really demonstrates a level of awareness about the potential for abuse in this teaching. I would suggest, in what the church would consider to be my worldview, that it is problematic in and of itself. But instead of reconsidering the teaching altogether, it frames any abuse as the result of misuse rather than a pretty clear flaw with the approach as a whole. One of the main values of our culture is what I am referring to as personal autonomy. That I am the one who decides what my purpose in life is, how I should live my life. That that is something that I generate, that I invent. And any attempts on the part of others to talk me out of that. Uh, Any unwillingness to basically approve and celebrate the choices I make to invent my own self are abusive, are controlling. And so it's not surprising within that worldview which dominates our culture that church discipline would be viewed as strange At best, it would be viewed as strange. What are you doing getting in my business? Um, But more likely as intrusive, as controlling, as abusive, as cultic. Now, make no mistake, church discipline can be exercised in a wrong way. It can be misused. Uh, And I mean, I guess that's the risk God takes anytime he works with any through any fallen people, Uh, but the the misuse of it doesn't invalidate the principle. As Benjamin Williamson wrote in his dissertation, quote, Xenos may claim to be anti-institutional and certainly have unique aspects to their structure. Still, at heart, they are no different from other fundamentalist groups attempting to recreate the church they observe in the New Testament pages using an inerrant Bible as the sole authority. Because they are the founders, Dennis and Gary are the ultimate arbiters of how the Bible is interpreted and applied. They reject Christian tradition as an authority, but they ultimately replace it with their authority. Dennis also wrote in his response to Reverend Martinez that, Elders are chosen by a two-thirds vote of the 800-plus servant team members for three-year terms of office and must be re-approved by additional two-thirds vote, unlike any cult. But as Benjamin Williamson writes, Elders are not voted on by the congregation. They are nominated by the other elders, board of trustees, and then vetted for three months and voted on by their servant team, deacons. However, these are people who have served under McCallum and Delashment's leadership for years. 
they cannot help but exert significant influence over them. Katie M. Reinecker released her story in a paper in March 2022 that looks at the ways that Xenos, now known as Dwell, perpetrates abuse but remains wholly ignorant of it. She's generous in her approach and makes some excellent points about how pruning those who can't fully submit means that those who remain are even more convinced of their superiority. But the more I research the various allegations that have been put to the church over the years, and the more I read of their responses, the harder it is for me to see how they could possibly remain ignorant of the issues. Their responses are either flat-out denials, dismissive of serious points made, or where they are sympathetic to the complainants, they frame any negative experience as an aberration that shouldn't have occurred if the leaders were following the teachings properly. I'm going to quote from Dennis's response to Reverend Martinez's article again. He wrote, We know we have critics, including ex-members. We also know Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Luke 6.26. Dennis also wrote, While we are unable to avoid all personal offences in such a widespread community, we try to address any objective complaint brought to us. The actual occurrence of abusive activity is quite rare. Any church of some size has people who feel disappointed or hurt by someone in the group and we've had to remove some bad players over the years, end quote. Addressing Reverend Martinez's assertion that hundreds of testimonies exist about the terrible conditions in Xenos, Dennis wrote, No, I don't believe this. Dozens, yes, carefully gathered from a 50-year-long ministry with attendance in the thousands during most of its history. The presence of dozens of angry people is not surprising, even if it is tragic. We hate to see it and do whatever we can to help people heal but hundreds is pure exaggeration for effect, end quote. The 2022 article from the Daily Beast supported the Reverend's position, quote, Hundreds of aggrieved former members have formed an online support group. Nearly 200 have submitted testimonies to a local blog. For the record, the online support group I know of has over 500 members at the time of writing this episode. Dennis and others have suggested that coverage that focuses only on negative experience of the church is unfair. Quote, The methodology of evaluating an organisation solely on complaints from disgruntled ex-members or ex-employees is flawed. The writer bases almost all their conclusions on this very biased pool of opinion. And Elder James Rochford wrote in his response to the Daily Beast piece, quote, Our church has been active since 1970. Throughout those 50-plus years, many thousands of people have walked through our doors. Thousands of people think Dwell is awesome, so it's not clear why these others should have more credibility than those thousands who love the group and what it stands for. I've said this before in a few different ways, and I'll say it again to the best of my ability now. If you have multiple former devotees, employees, students, or any other kind of participant coming out of your course, political organisation, company, or any other group, and they have similar stories of abusive behaviour and trauma, then I don't care about the gushing testimonials of others. You need to look at what you are doing wrong, and you need to work to fix it. If your response is not to listen and learn and to do better, then I don't think you should be in any kind of position of authority over anyone else's life. If I haven't personally experienced those things within a group, but there are credible, corroborated stories from multitudes who have, then I'm not about to raise my voice to think my own experience is anything other than fortunate, that I'm lucky to have somehow missed the harm. In February 2022, NBC4, the local Columbus television station, aired a six-part series sharing allegations of emotional abuse and exploitation from more than 10 former members of Dwell. In the days following the series, former Xenos leader Ian Martin responded to the claims on the TV station and supported them as true to his experiences. Then, more than 60 former members reached out to the station to share their own experiences of abuse and share their agreement with the allegations. Around 20 current members shared positive experiences, and Paul Alexander told reporter Jamie Ostroff that of their more than 200 small groups across the city, quote, there is not a pastor or a counsellor or an elder in every one of these groups, 
And I think that leads to miscommunication and leads to people making mistakes, maybe going further than they wanted to, end quote. This would seem to contrast with the church's own statement to NBC4. Leadership refused an interview but said, We are not a perfect church, but we do have many safeguards to protect members from potentially harmful leaders. Yet they make a point of including the following at the bottom of their ministry house agreement, quote, House leaders and members are not under the control of Dwell Community Church. Ministry house leaders are not employees of Dwell, and such leadership is not an official office in the church. Therefore, Dwell cannot accept liability for accidents or errors in judgment on the part of ministry house leaders or members. Elder James Rochford wrote in response to allegations that some were too fearful to put their names to, quote, We sincerely want to grow from mistakes and repent of any sins we've committed, but it's difficult to respond to claims on social media that are unfalsifiable. There's no feasible way to interact with an anonymous person or with anonymous claims. But as Jamie Ostroff reported, while NBC4 Investigates reporting included conversations with anonymous sources, it mostly relied on named sources on the record. And over the years, many have happily put their names to their experiences. Here's one about how they were instructed to treat those who had disengaged with the church. Former member Emily Fravel was involved from 2001 to 2009 and spoke with Dana King for the Columbia Dispatch. The journalist wrote, quote, As a member, she said she had been told not to talk to people who left or believe anything they say because they were bitter, angry and never really committed to God. End quote. Consider this, and I'll ask you, does this sound like an organisation that's open to listening to the experiences of those who have departed? As former member Katie Heck told NBC4, I think that when you hear stories of pain, that people are sharing ways that they have been hurt, I think the appropriate response is to be curious about how and why and to seek to make things right. Apologise. Find out what the systems are that are causing these pains so consistently. These stories span decades, they are not just one-offs, end quote. Dennis McCallum wrote in his response piece to Reverend Martinez, quote, It's important to note that reports by Spirit Watch, NBC4, The Daily Beast Report and The Columbus Dispatch are not independent or spontaneous. They're being orchestrated and, we believe, manipulated by well-known adversaries of our church. Ex-members Mark Kennedy, Carrie Pukovic and Gail Burkholder have been waging a media war with our church for several years. I think listeners of this podcast know that I'm completely independent and I'm happy to be transparent about never having contact with any of these people for this episode. A quote from Katie Reinecker's paper that struck me is this. I don't particularly care about the doctrines of Dwell Community Church or whether their church leadership enjoys divine inspiration. I am not overly concerned with the particular systems of belief or their validity. I am concerned with the significant damage inflicted upon particularly ex-members in the form of emotional isolation and abuse, as well as the recruitment of vulnerable individuals and minors who may later become subject to such cases of abuse. Whether or not many people have had positive experiences with the church is beside the point. End quote. When I asked Jessica whether she thought that there was anything dangerous about the way the organisation operated, she told me a few things that we've already included in this episode. And she also shared the following. There are people that probably wouldn't agree with me, but I think that what they do is child labour, trafficking in some ways, because they specifically state that, you know, student ministry is the most important ministry, and they're using our free labor to grow their church, their power, their numbers. And ultimately, that equates into money as people get older and, and have to tithe. And it's just, it's, it makes me, it makes me, I, I have to grieve for my own loss of uh, my childhood, where it was all focused around evangelism and growing. And there were a couple years where me and two of my closest friends at the time, we ran our own that met at my own house, that we were the 
the leaders. There weren't adults. We ran our own group and we all taught at other groups. And I was just looking at my old notes uh, recently from back then. And in two years, we collectively, the three of us had brought out a hundred people and there are quite a few that are still active, prominent people in the church. And so it, it just makes me sad that, that I wasted my childhood working for the church. And it makes me sad that there are people that, as a byproduct of that, that, that there are people that have been hurt by the church because I brought them out and that are still in there. Yeah, I, I think that they use children and they groom students, you know, before your brain is fully developed to accept a certain level of lack of boundaries and a certain level of abuse. And it's really hard to get out of that. About the status of Dwell today, Jessica has heard of a decrease in overall numbers. Two years ago, they were saying that they had 6,000 people. This year, they said that they had 4,000 people. Uh, Now, they're blaming that on COVID, but I think it's because of the publicity. Jessica and others have found support in an online group where members share their experiences and unpack some of the beliefs and find that they feel less alone. But the impact is ongoing, of course. I think that I'll probably, for the rest of my life, be unpacking things. And so through the support group, uh, you know, some people, uh, a couple of really incredible women have started a nonprofit to help people leave. And through donations, we're able to purchase billboards in the city. And we do an in-person support group once a month where, you know, anywhere from five to 30 people show up. And I think everybody just kind of falls on a different It's a process to leave and to slowly unpack it all. We have created a really cool support system where people really support each other. They're very unhappy with it. I received a message from an elder's sister who I grew up with who said that we're a cult trying to attack them. So that's kind of funny. But yeah, uh, I, I hope that people that leave now will have more support than when I left. We'll finish up this episode with some words from Desiree Gaylord, who told me that if she could say something to Dennis McCallum today, it would be this. Dwell Community Church does not have Jesus' presence. They lost their lampstand long ago. It is disappointing that the McCallum family won't change and just do better. Dennis, you and your organisation are not being persecuted by the world. You are experiencing Jesus flipping over some tables. The lampstand has been long removed. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Let's Talk About Sects. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, which is linked in the show notes, and grab yourself a copy of Joe Gould's soundtrack album, Nobody Joins a Cult, which you can also stream on Spotify. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. It was edited and mixed by Matt Brazel, with original music composed by Joe Gould. A huge thanks to Jessica McNulty and Desiree Gaylord for sharing their experiences with me, and to all of the other former members who shared their stories across forums and websites and media interviews. It's only through those who speak out that we can understand the dynamics of organisations like these. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 6 of the show. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds. 
head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at iasp.info. Catch you again next episode.